Did the NIH have any reason to behave the way it did during COVID? Yes, the answer is yes. There were 350 million reasons for them to do what they did, and I think it caused harm. Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here. Thanks for coming by, and it's good to be back with you here today. Listen, we're going to be talking about incentives today and this uh, FOIA request by Open the Books, who figured out that the NIH has been receiving kickbacks from pharma companies. So here we go. Um, let me see if I can get my drawing tool out here because I love to draw. So let's go here. Episode 61 today, uh, perverse incentives. That's what I'm talking about. I think they cause deaths and suffering because if you know, the United States didn't just have a bad outcome relative to other developed nations. It had bad outcomes compared to any other nations, um, developed or not. And, and so there's a reason for that, and we're going to get into that reason here today. But first, let's make sure we have this shared understanding. I love this quote by Charlie Munger, right-hand man for decades of Warren Buffett. Charlie said, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. Meaning very simply, this is just human nature, something that we've known about since time immemorial. And when humans have various incentives, they behave in certain ways. It's just how it is. All species do this. In fact, you know, if you want to train dogs, if you want to train birds, if you want to uh, train horses, it doesn't matter. Any organism that responds to incentives is trainable in a certain way. So humans are, are no different. And this has been the oldest, most reliable way to get humans to behave in a certain way is with money. This goes way back. Remember, you know, the, the saying has been said, uh, money is the root of all evil. It's not true. It's the full quote. The full quote is, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is a neutral concept. Love of money describes your relationship to money. Well, we have a very perverse relationship with money here in our culture right now. If you can make money at it, it's pretty much accepted, and all sorts of things happen. Um, chemical companies make things that harm the earth, but they make money at it, yeah, so they kind of get a free pass. Um, you know, weapons manufacturing companies, uh, they make money at it, so, you know, it's, it's all that. We have idol worship around money, so money is a really big thing, right? Our most famous people four decades ago included people like Joe DiMaggio, um, Marilyn Monroe, of course, a celebrity, no surprise there, but also Albert Einstein today. If you really want to be, you know, in, in the top of societal pyramids right now, you might just be a hedge fund manager or a private equity manager, somebody who makes money with money. And we idolize that, we revere that. So money is a very powerful influencer. Of course it is. So Charlie Munger said, you show me the incentive. I'll, let me qualify that. You show me the monetary incentive. I'll show you the RCT outcome. In this case, I'm talking about randomized controlled trials because we know now that pharma companies, when they design a trial because they have an outcome they want to see, 90% of the time they get exactly the result they're looking for. Surprise, right? So that's what Munger said, but I think we have to go a little further than that. The corollary, one layer deeper by Thomas Sowell says, quote, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong, end quote. Bravo, very well said. There's nothing worse than putting decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong or pay no price for the consequences or the outcomes of their particular decisions. So 
Why are we talking about that? We're talking about that because of this. Uh, open the books. They had an investigation, and they didn't just FOIA, but they had to file a federal suit in order to pry out of the NIH this information, quote, Fauci's royalties and the $350 million royalty payment stream hidden by the NIH. Now, I love these people that open the books. Who are they? Uh, they say here, quote, they work hard to capture and post all disclosed spending at every level of government, federal, state, and local. In 2021, they filed 47,000 Freedom of Information Act requests and successfully captured $12 trillion in public expenditures. Well done. I love that. Um, and so as a government watchdog organization, they accept no government funding incentives. They're telling you where their incentives are. So if they did accept government funding, now we'd have to question whether they were really fully and completely filing uh, the FOIA request that they were. Of course, they get it. So a uh, great organization here to figure this out. And by the way, um, they are a 501c3 nonprofit. So if you feel like giving money to a company or an organization that's doing a really good job, this would be one of them. So good job here. And now we're going to rest on their good hard work and find out um, Andrew Jeffsky here uh, at, sorry, and Adam um, and Andrzejewski. Yeah, Andrzejewski. Uh, Adam Andrzejewski writes, quote, last year, the National Institute of Health, uh, Anthony Fauci's employer, doled out $30 billion in government grants to roughly 56,000 recipients. The largesse of taxpayer money buys a lot of favor and clout within the scientific research and healthcare industries, end quote. 56,000 recipients. These are individual researchers working at organizations or universities. These are universities. These are other entities. These are NGOs. These are, these are you name it, but they're in all 50 U.S. states, probably some non-U.S. states, maybe even in Wuhan, right? So that $30 billion, that's money. That's money coming out. That is $30 billion cash going out. You can buy a lot of favors with that. Also a lot of fealty. Anthony Fauci has clearly run the NIH and the NIAID like um, the godfather might have run a mob, right? With one big exception. At least the mob didn't go after children, right? Anthony Fauci's NIAID, as we're going to show here, has been absolutely complicit in doing things that are, to me, horrifying as a scientist, as a parent, as a citizen, as a human. So let's talk about this. First, we'll go for the corruption that I believe is contained within this story. Carrying on. Quote, however, in our breaking investigation, we found hundreds of millions of dollars in payments also flow the other way. These are royalty payments from third-party payers, think pharmaceutical companies, back to the NIH and individual NIH scientists. We estimate that between fiscal years 2010 and 2020, more than $350 million in royalties were paid by third parties to the agency and NIH scientists who are credited as co-inventors, end quote. Why are NIH scientists receiving royalties at all? Why? So here's the thing. If you work for IBM and you invent something and a patent gets filed on it, it kind of belongs to IBM, right? It makes sense. So you're drawing a paycheck. You know, it may be that, that IBM has to fund a lot of different people whose efforts don't end up in a, in a productive patent. But when you work for the NIH, you're working uh, with and for the taxpayer, with taxpayer money, for taxpayers. That's it. You're, you're in a public role. You're using lots and lots of taxpayer money in order to draw your paycheck, use the equipment, all the research supplies, everything. And then when you find something out, 
you get the private benefit of that. It's a little bit weird to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but worse, it creates conflicts of interest that are pretty bad. 350 million conflicts of interest, I think. So, carrying on, quote, because those payments enrich the agency and its scientists, each and every royalty payment could be a potential conflict of interest and needs disclosure. Recently, our organization at OpenTheBooks.com forced NIH, forced NIH to disclose over 22,100 royalty payments totaling nearly $134 million paid to the agency and nearly 1,700 NIH scientists. These payments occurred during the most recently available period, which is 2009 to 2014. That's most recently available? Um, 2014, that's like eight years ago. Quote, the production is the result of our federal lawsuit versus the NIH. The agency admits to holding 3,000 pages of line-by-line royalty since 2009. So far, they've only produced 1,200 pages. The next 1,800 pages of production will cover the period from 2015 to 2020. I am especially interested in 2020, aren't you? I'll guarantee you that's the last set of documents they release, and they're going to be super heavily redacted, and we'll find out why in just a second. So I could imagine actually putting a Martinson tack on, if I could be so bold, to the amazing quote by Thomas Sowell, which would be, quote, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong and who secretly get rich at the same time. That's my tack on. So that's what's uh, been happening here. So Hey, um, before I carry on, first things first, I have uh, the great honor that this show is being sponsored, and it's being sponsored by Secure.com. Secure uses proprietary encryption to provide fully private and secure instant messaging and email. All communication is held securely in Swiss servers without using any of the big tech platforms. Listen, in today's day and age, your email or messages or even bank information can easily be intercepted by bad actors. Your private information, pictures, chat, and email are consistently mined and sold by big tech. When you use a free product, you are the product. Secure never minds your data and never asks for your phone number. You can easily and securely communicate with both secure users and non-secure users alike, allowing you to send completely secure emails to your doctor, banker, lawyer, or anyone else. You can even set a time to destruct the message. Even your internet provider can't peek on your emails. Secure is your solution to stop the constant, unauthorized use of your digital identity. And it costs only $5 a month for the messenger or $10 per month for the messenger and email. Go to secure.com and take back your privacy today. That's S-E-K-U-R.com. Peak Insiders get 25% off. Or if you're not an insider, promo code PEAK15 gets you a limited time 15% off. So thank you to Secure for being the sponsor here. And now we'll get back to our program. All right. How about this then? Why, why, is he, why is Anthony Fauci receiving anything at all? Uh, I have questions about this. We'll get into that a little bit more in the next couple of slides here. Um, but look at this. In 2005, 2005, 2005, following an AP investigation, the NIH expressed concern. They expressed concern over the royalty payments being a potential conflict of interest. No, <laughs> end quote. Nothing potential about it. Those are really full-on conflicts of interest, guaranteed. Quote, even Dr. Fauci said that he felt it was inappropriate to receive payment and donated the entire amount to charity, according to the NIH. 
<laughs> the entire amount of, of whatever um, had been identified during that AP investigation in 2005. I'm pretty sure nothing's been donated since then, but I, I would love to be uh, happily corrected on that if it turns out to be wrong. Quote, the personal royalties are legal, but there is an apparent lack of transparency around them. It wasn't until after the AP investigation in 2005 that the NIH created a policy to disclose the payments. Hmm, okay. Well, at least they're making some, some headway here, I guess. Um, well, the National Desk spoke to Open the Books' Adam Angievsky, who explained how it took a federal lawsuit to receive access to the disclosures that NIH began making in 2005. So, well, wait a minute, I thought it was a policy. And now you have to have, not even, you can't even get access to these documents by FOIA. You have to have a lawsuit, apparently. Quote, even then, important information on the disclosure documents was redacted, such as who the payments came from and how much was doled out. <laughs> okay, so so here's, here's how this is, okay. You consider that important information? So the NEH set a policy that they're going to not do this anymore or, or be more transparent about it. And instead of any of that, of course, what did we get? We got them saying, all right, you have to pry this information out of our cold, dead hands with a federal lawsuit. And then we're going to redact who paid the money and who got it. Except for that, we're being pretty open and transparent. This is ridiculous. Full stop. I mean, come on. This is totally unacceptable. Completely 100% unacceptable. Unless you live in a corrupt society that's so far gone that people could reasonably disagree with that conclusion. Because... There are complexities here, they might say, but there really aren't. There really aren't. All right. Um, so Open the Books was only able to verify a top-line number for the total amount given to NIH scientists via these royalty payments, as well as the total number of payments given to each scientist, but that's it. Not how much or in, in, in individual amounts or who it came from. That's the ultimate conflict of interest. Would it, would it be reasonable to know that um, the CEO of, of Exxon was receiving money directly from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Possibly, right? Would you want to know that a witness in a trial was receiving money from one side or the other? Possibly. Could create a conflict of interest. All right. But reading back here, um, Angievsky uh, noted to TND how the agency is slow walking the release of its disclosure documents and relating to the royalty payments that Open the Books had to sue access to after... Um, the FOIA request was ignored, so they ignored FOIA requests, got sued, got forced to hand these documents out, redacted them heavily. According to Angievsky, the NIH admitted to holding 3,000 pages worth of disclosure information related to the royalty payments, but is only releasing 300 payments pages a month. End quote. Guarantee you, I know what's in those last pages, too. That last trove of 300 is going to be the money shot because we're going to see a lot of what happened in 2020. And I'm going to show you why I think that's ridiculously important um, coming right up. So first question. First question is, why is the NIH being as secretive as, say, the State Department? You know, we have to redact everything. You can't know. Well, listen, they say that um, you have freedom in a society when the government fears the people. And you have tyranny when the people feel fear the government. Clearly, we're somewhere halfway between those two extremes when the NIH feels it is a public agency. It, it doesn't really have to abide by rules or laws or disclosures. And you don't really deserve to have access to this information. They're more important. They, they get to decide what they want to tell you about and when and how, right? 
um, which means they're not really over here on the side of serving the public. They're somewhere far down the line of serving themselves. Okay, so let's carry back here. Uh, note here, I went to the NIH's own website this morning, found out that the NIH's mission is to seek fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems and the application of that knowledge to enhance health, lengthen life, and reduce illness and disability. And they have four goals. Look at goal number four down there in yellow. Goal, quote, to exemplify and promote the highest level of scientific integrity, public accountability, and social responsibility in the conduct of science, end quote. Well, I guess my question then, NIH, is how does failing to with, uh, disclose conflicts of interest enhance any of those goals? <laughs> how's, it, how's it enhance your scientific integrity or accountability, public accountability? I mean, it, it undermines all of those. So here's, here's a life lesson from me, another Martinson tip. Trust what people do, not what they say. Words are cheap. Actions are where everything hits the road. So the NIH's words are lofty and good, but their actions are very much undermining scientific integrity, accountability, trustworthiness, and probably as a consequence of all of those, public good, which means actually getting to their mission of enhancing human health. You can't do that if you're all conflicted and you're accidentally or not so accidentally promoting things that pad your personal wallet versus things that are best for patients and public health. All right. So that's the NIH's own thing. Secondarily, like, how, how, Fauci's been a career bureaucrat for 50 years. I mean, he is the godfather. He's, he's, well, he's very famous in Washington for knowing, if you read the real Anthony Fauci by RFK Jr., you will find out who Fauci really is. And he's like the godfather. He doles out that $30 billion, you know. And if you disappoint him, like, there's no compunction about you know, saying that Washington University will lose all of its grant funding if you disappoint him or, or you know, maybe even the state of Missouri, right? So, so there's, it's, he's been playing a game, but I can guarantee you something he hasn't been doing is putting on the white lab coat, operating a pipette, spinning up a centrifuge, and reading a scintillator, right? He's been not been doing actual lab work. So why is he listed as an inventor on, say, patent number 9441041, which was in September of 2016 is when the patent date came out, um, and it was filed in September of 2015. There's no chance in the world Anthony Fauci was legitimately contributing to this particular patent in any other way than making sure that it had all the money it needed, right? Yeah, we could say it's an important contribution, but not as like a, a principal investigator inventor. By the way, look back at this thing too. Notice it's... um. This is for the use of antagonists of the interaction between HIV GP120. That GP120 protein in the HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, that GP120 protein is the very same one that accidentally, somehow, has four sequences arrayed right around the edge of the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. Somehow, those GP120 proteins that Fauci was busy co-inventing treatments for ended up arrayed all around the spike protein in critical spots where actual binding and interactions could happen. So I got some questions about that too, because now we can begin to weave this story of actual deep conflicts of interest. So if Tony Fauci owns patents on things that could make money, if a GP120 inhibitor was found to be useful, 
in treating COVID. Oh my gosh, that is a very, very big, very lucrative sort of a patent out there. So we might understand a little bit, we're starting to unravel a little bit about what's going on with these conflicts of interest and why they're so important. I can't believe I have to be the one talking about this. This should be just completely obvious, total common knowledge out there in the world about the role of incentives in shaping behavior. Remember, you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. Thank you for that one, Charlie Munger. So, carrying on just a little bit, let's just a brief review of what the NIH and NIAID did or didn't do during COVID. First, Fauci and others, we know that they helped create the pandemic by funding risky gain-of-function research at the very, uh, of the very sorts that somehow, somehow came out of a lab possibly the Wuhan Institute of Virology, possibly somewhere else, but it's the signature couldn't be more clear, as well as the trail of money, as well as the grant applications by EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak's organization, as well as all the work that had been going on at UNC through Ralph Barrick and coronavirus research and coronavirus vaccine research that had all been going on prior to 2020. This is now completely obvious. All right, two would be this idea that the NIH and the FCDC and the FDA, they all conspired, and I'm using that word very carefully, they conspired to block promising but cheap early treatments, never once told anybody about vitamin D, and invariably supported policies that made things worse, not better. So lockdowns, promoting fear. Oh my God, look at all these cases. Well, they blurred what a case was and used PCR tests to amplify those cases. What's wrong with promoting fear? Well, fear and anxiety are, are enormous destroyers of the immune system. And the more destroyed the immune system is, the more likely it is that somebody's going to get COVID and have a bad run at it. Vitamin D is an enhancer of the immune system. Lockdowns are destroyers of the immune system invariably, every single time we saw the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH, and Fauci come along and make a set of recommendations, they invariably were on the side of doing things that somehow, magically, awfully, made the pandemic worse and led to worse outcomes and more deaths. And that is why it, you, you have to hold your public health authorities accountable for something. We should probably hold them accountable for public health. Total outcomes, not individual outcomes, that's between you and your doctor. Total outcomes, United States, deaths per million, worst outcomes pretty much of almost any developed nation out there. How do we explain that? Well, bad, bad, uh, bad policies. Number three, uh, the NIH treatment guidelines coupled with the PREP Act, which is um, the Pandemic Response uh, Emergency Something Act, uh, that, that led hospitals to be incentivized to stick to obviously losing treatment strategies. That includes remdesivir for people who are coming into the hospital very sick. That includes putting people on ventilators. How did it incentivize them? It's very clear. The PREP Act says that if a hospital or a, um, a doctor, a healthcare provider, is following CDC or NIH guidelines, they're, li they're, they're liable from, they have immunity from liability. But if they go off that reservation, if they decide to do something else that hasn't explicitly been anointed and granted and blessed by the NIH or the CDC, now they're kind of exposed to liability. So, you, you know, hospitals aren't places where doctors and patients get together. First and foremost, they are tombs of ensconcement for uh, administrators, lawyers and administrators, CEOs and all that stuff. Anyway, those people are very incentivized not to have any liability whenever possible. So they looked at the rules and they said, we can't get in trouble for doing this stuff. So whoever sets this stuff has enormous power in this conversation, and so that's what happened. 
Number three was the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, they all got together and they said, here are some things you can do and a bunch of things you can't do. And those things that you could do, we now know were some of the worst things you could possibly do for patients if you cared about things like them surviving or not coming out of there with long COVID or other long-term sequelae or if they not dying, right? Okay. And then number four in this list is this monomaniacal focus on vaccines and vaccines only for everyone, regardless of exclusionary medical background criteria, like, hey, I tend to get, you know, anaphylactic reactions. Like, we don't care. Everybody's got to get this thing. No medical exceptions. Um, or statistical risk, right? That wasn't taken into account. I mean, come on. We knew that like 98% of all the deaths happened above age 70, you know, and then it fell off very, very rapidly. Why would you demand that everybody who bore almost no statistical risk had to get this as a condition of continued employment, uh, flying, access to things. You know, this was in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all over Europe. Crazy, right? But it happened. Um, and worse, they used a leaky vaccine that they knew was leaky in the midst of a pandemic, which, which assured, ended up assuring that that pandemic was going to last longer, not shorter. Um, and so this was all known about, I've talked about this, you know, extensively for a couple of years now. So that's the backdrop to all of this. So the question is, is this just like incompetence, pure incompetence? Well, the answer, no, it can't be. Because pure incompetence, coin flip, every so often you'll get it right. When you get it wrong every single time, and you see, remember that old adage from the military that, that once is an accident, twice is coincidence, but three times is enemy action. Well, dozens of times we watched this, the decision was always made towards more fear, more lockdowns, more centralized control, more profits flowing into the pharma companies, more, more, more this way. And there was not as much, there were or no decisions going the other way, which was to notice the things that were actually working. There were zero trips to other countries that figured this out, to the state of Uttar Pradesh in, in India, figured it out, learned how to manage this disease very, very well from a public health standpoint. Could have spent a couple of pennies going over there and figuring it out, but nobody was interested in that because of the incentives. The incentives, if you went over and did that and actually figured out, if we had done what Uttar Pradesh had done here in the United States, sure, we would have saved, you know, maybe, you know, a few hundred thousand lives, but a lot of people would have lost billions of dollars in profits. That's all we need to understand. It's not hard. It's just part of where we are as humans. So, Carrying on this corruption at the NIH, though, this isn't anything new. So they referred in that earlier article we read together about this 2005 inquiry by the AP. This is in the British Medical Journal here in 2005. Um, this is You can actually find this on PubMed. Um, so this is within the NIH system. Um, and uh, they were worried or noting back then these royalty payments uh, to staff and researchers at the NIH um, creates cause new troubles there. Quote, patients who took part in clinical trials at the U.S. NIH, had no idea that scientists at the institutes received $8.9 million in royalty payments and might benefit financially for the use of their discoveries by pharmaceutical companies and device makers, reports from the Associated Press allege. That was proven. This information was not made public until the press agency obtained this information after filing a request under the Freedom of Information Act. End quote. So, Informed consent, which, by the way, is my Thursday program at 7 o'clock on Thursdays. It's live. It's a live cast. Um, come on by if you want, if you like this uh, kind of content. Thursdays at 7. 
we talk about informed consent. Well, that's the name of the program. We talk about all kinds of things. But informed consent fundamentally means that a patient is given all the information they need to make a balanced decision. So it could include the risks of a particular treatment and the benefits. But as well, the conflict of interest needs to be noted. For example, let's imagine, regretfully, you come down with a condition, you go to your doctor, and your doctor says, well, here's the best treatment for you. I really think we should get you on this. Let's go. That's one layer of information. But what would happen if the doctor said, this is a $30,000 treatment I want to put you on. By the way, I get a $10,000 kickback from the pharma company when I prescribe this. Or you could take this $1,000 medicine, which seems to be about as good, but I don't get any money back from that one. Now you have more decision, more, more ability to make an informed consent kind of a decision, right? So clear, this is the NIH was caught with their hands in the cookie jar. They were caught not disclosing huge conflicts of interest to patients who they were pulling into clinical trials. That's a no-no. In an honest world, they would face consequences. People would have been fired. Jobs would have been lost. Possibly people would have had to pay money back, maybe even gone to jail, depending on the level of violation they had committed. But in my world of science, the one I'm trying desperately to resurrect, if not defend, rear guard action, it's one where integrity is really, really important. You know, you need the whole peer review system doesn't work without integrity, right? Because let's be honest, in peer review, where they hold it up like a gold standard, like, oh, is that journal, is that paper been peer reviewed or not? Well, if it hasn't been, well, I can't trust it. But listen, I've, I've peer reviewed papers and had papers peer reviewed. Let me tell you a little something about the system. It doesn't actually work unless the person doing the peer review has integrity because more often than not, you're tapped because you're an expert in the field. You get this paper. It's supposed to be anonymous. You don't know who wrote it, but you look at the research and you're like, oh, that's totally Bob, right? And I hate Bob. I hate his work and we're in conflict and I feel like Bob's stealing some of my, you know, I'm in, I'm in competition with Bob for limited grant dollars. So I'm going to just, I'm just going to trash Bob's paper, right? You're kind of counting on that not happening, but it does because, hey, humans are humans. Incentives are what they are, right? So at any rate, um, look at this here uh, coming back. Uh, so the press agency uh, AP reported that 916 present and former NIH researchers received annual royalty payments averaging 9700 bucks, kind of small, but could have received as much as $150,000 at the same time, the NIH researchers spent millions in taxpayer dollars studying the treatments that they had developed that were licensed to drug companies. So, so they're receiving money back from things that they used taxpayer money to develop that they then licensed out to pharma companies. You didn't have to spend any of that money, right? So to a pharma company, to just license something out where you don't have to spend all the money to actually discover it, it's a pretty good deal, right? So here's the system taxpayers throw all this money in the NIH uses it pays themselves handsome salaries really nice um, uh, pension and retirement benefits and things like that and has all this fancy lab equipment takes no risk no career risk no nothing it just fools around and finds good stuff I'm totally okay with that process but then they say we own it it's ours I have the patent on this right and I'm going to license this out to a pharma company and get money back that's where I fall apart on this whole story because um, that's not how it's supposed to work, right? Can you imagine, like, the U.S. Army said, well, I know we went over to Iraq and, and um, we attacked them, and then we found a lot of gold, and we decided to share that with the soldiers who were in the platoon that found the gold because, you know, kind of finders keepers, right? You know, uh, that's what they're doing here at the NIH is this sort of finders keepers mentality. Not cool. 
All right, this is the funny part, if you like your humor dark. Um, So a patient advocacy group called the Alliance for Human Research Protection says that patients might have thought differently about the risks of the trial treatment if they knew of scientists' financial interests. You think? (laughs) Of course. Um, The NIH has been criticized before for not disclosing conflicts of interest. So five years ago, that would be in um, in the year 2000, just before leaving office, Donna Shalala, then secretary of the HHS, issued a requirement that scientists disclose their financial interests. But nothing happened until the AP investigations. So, huh. Oh, there was a requirement, but the NIH decided, yeah, you know what? That's just a requirement that our boss, our Uber boss, uh, put down on us. Let's not follow it. We don't really need to, right? In in private world, over here in real in world where real people have real jobs, you get in trouble for stuff like that. You might lose your position. The CEO says, here's what we're going to do. And you're just like, nah, I got my own ideas about how I want to run this thing. Ideas that personally enrich me and undermine science, undermine public confidence, deliver shoddy results, and invariably corrupt the system I'm supposed to be administrating. Um, If you're a mid-level manager and your CEO says not to do that and then you do it and all those bad outcomes happen, you should get canned, right? Right away. Did that happen here? Mm, No, not so much. Um, So, uh, sorry for the title, but it's how I feel that this reads best. Um, the aid press agency reported that two leading researchers, and this is 2005, so Anthony Fauci is not a household world word at that point in time, household name. Uh, Anthony Fauci, head of the NIAID, and his deputy, Clifford Lane, remember that name, Clifford Lane, it's going to appear again in just a minute, received payments relating to the development of Interleukin 2. Fauci explained that the government patented the development and shared... Um, Oh, Dr. Lane told the BMJ the payment was part of his federal compensation. It's part of my federal compensation. Guess what, Dr. Lane? That means it's part of public record then. You can't hide it because the salaries um, and payments of uh, that go to compensation for every public employee at every level are completely public knowledge at all moments in time. So the one that he's trying to say, oh, it's just part of my federal compensation, but I didn't have to tell anybody about it. Why is it different at the NIH? I don't understand. Anyway, he explained, Dr. Lane did, that the government patented the development and shared the payments it received with the inventors. Oh, very nice of the government. Doesn't Usually usually isn't that, that nice. Um, since 1997, he's received about 45 grand. He says the Institute's awarded $36 million in grants and studies to test the treatment. So, public money comes in, you develop an idea, you patent it, and then you hand out $36 million $36 million to test your treatment. And if it works, hey, this all comes back around and is good. Quote, Dr. Anthony Fauci told the BMJ that as a government employee, he was required by law to put his name on the patent for the development of interleukin-2. Required by law. Was this one of those laws that slipped into a 27,812-page, you know, uh, omnibus funding bill, you know, at some two in the morning by somebody? Really? Federal law required him to put his name? Okay. Um, And he was also required by law to receive part of the payment that the government received for use of the payment. He was required, I was required, my hands were tied. I couldn't, I had to. But once they pointed this out to him, he said that he felt it was inappropriate to receive payment and donated the entire amount to charity. Uh, Probably the entire amount related to this one thing they dug up. I'll guarantee you there have been other amounts 
that have not been given to charity. But I hope I'm wrong about that and would love to be proven wrong. So Anthony Fauci, if you can prove, if you can show us that you've donated all the rest of the royalty payments, because you obviously understand that it's inappropriate to receive payments of this sort, we would love to see that. Please supply those records. Both doctors, that's Fauci and Lane, told Associated Press that they had been concerned about an apparent conflict of interest for some time before the agency story appeared. Both doctors, we'd been concerned about this apparent conflict of interest for some time before your story even came out. We, we were already concerned about that. Now that your story's come out, now, now we've donated our money and it won't happen again. Um, because <laughs> just, boy. <sighs> The BMJ was told by an NIH spokesperson, on the other hand, that the NIH had no plans to put information about payments to its researchers on its website and that the BMJ would have to make a request via the FOIA FOIA to find out royalty payments to individual researchers. And they were even lying then because now that um, Open the Books tried to do a FOIA, got rebuffed or ignored, then went to a federal lawsuit, they still couldn't find out the royalty payments to individual researchers by source. So they're just hiding, 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 and they've been doing this for a long time. So the NIH to the public basically is saying, nah, F you. We're not, <laughs> we don't serve you. That's crazy talk. You serve us. Um, so they got it exactly upside down and backwards. Now, now we have to get down to the ultimate conflict of interest. I'm going to bring this all back around to what just happened during COVID and why this is so dark. First, the US FDA, a lot of you know about this. There's something called an EUA, which is an emergency use authorization of medical products and related authorities. This is from the FDA website right here. Um, last updated in January of 2017, it requires a variety of things. Section D, no alternatives. Quote in yellow, for FDA to issue an EUA, there must be no adequate, approved, or and available alternative to the candidate product for diagnosing, preventing, or treating the disease or condition in question. There must be no adequate. There must be nothing. There can't be anything. If there was anything out there that could possibly treat in an effective way, then the EUA doesn't apply. So what do we have under EUA? Well, all the vaccines have come under EUA at this point in time. Remdesivir was authorized under EUA, et cetera, et cetera. A variety of things were authorized under EUA. Um, you get it. You, you know, listen, you're in a pandemic. You know, there's an emergency. You would want something like an emergency use authorization to allow people to go out and use something if you think it worked. But you would have to have some sort of observation, some reason to suspect that thing actually worked and worked in the way it did. And then once something better came along, you'd pull the EUA for this and you'd go with that new thing, um, whatever that happened to be. So here's where it gets a little dark. I think this is the ultimate conflict of interest. Public Citizen in June of 2020 dug this up about the NIH vaccine. Quote, the U.S. government may jointly own a potential coronavirus vaccine. The NIH has played a critical role in coronavirus research for years, Building off this work, federal scientists have helped design and test mRNA-1273, a vaccine candidate developed in partnership with Moderna. The federal government has filed multiple patents covering mRNA-1273. In this report, we describe two patent applications that list federal scientists as co-inventors. If the government successfully pursued its patent filings, the resulting patents would likely confer significant rights and money we also review recently disclosed contracts between NIH and Moderna. The agreement suggests that NIH has not transferred its rights, but instead maintains a joint stake, which is indeed the case. So carrying on down this, they continue to write in that public citizen uh, report here, 
about U.S. application number 16 slash 344 comma 774. In 2016, federal scientists in partnership with academic research developed a new way to stabilize coronavirus spike proteins. The approach required two amino acids known as prolines or proline, um, proline, proline, two prolines between the central helix and the heptad repeat. Um, it's called the 2P approach. The stabilized spike protein for an earlier ad coronavirus produced a stronger immune response at a lower dose than the naturally occurring protein. So this is a good thing. You would think, oh, okay, so if we're going to put this mRNA into a human body and we inject it in, we want a strong response from the body. So we're going to stabilize the spike protein. The invention was figuring out where to put these two prolines, right? Good work. They figured it out. Stabilizes the spike protein. Now, first question. How long does a stabilized spike protein last and why does it confer a stronger immunogenic response? Is it because it sticks around longer because the body can't clear that spike protein? Good question. These would be the sorts of things you would normally ask and answer during an extended process of uh, vaccine development. You would say, hey, we have this idea. We're going to put this totally jury-rigged protein where we've done some things to it back into a body. And now we want to know a couple things. A, um, how much of that protein is actually produced? B, does it stay where we think it's going to stay? C, what kind of an immune response does it actually develop and generate? Is it more of just an antibody response or is it a more holistic complement, including the innate immune system with T cells and all that? And then does it actually have any harms all on its own because it's a whole new substance? We can't say, oh, you know, there's spike proteins that exist on coronaviruses and we gave the spike protein to humans. They're the same thing. They're not. That double proline stabilization says this is now a brand new protein, possibly with brand new biological impacts and effects within the body. In fact, if we looked at the crossover of the impact of the biological activity of the wild type protein and this new one that humans have made, I'm sure they overlap quite a bit. There's a lot of Venn diagram overlap, but there's going to be some territory that's unique and different to both of them. And of course, you'd want to characterize that, understand it, understand it very, very well. Was any of that done? Well, no. Um, we're figuring that out now on the fly, of course. So carrying on, um, so who were these scientists who are named on this on this one patent, on this one thing? So I hunt it down. Um, and so here we find that the lead inventor is uh, Barney Graham from the NIAID. And co-inventors include a bunch of people from the Scripps Institute there. I see four or five on there. Scripps Institute. Isn't that the place where Christian Anderson worked? He, the virologist who spent all that time working with Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and um, Andrew Tabak and sorry, Lawrence Tabak and all those other people at NIH and NIAID to squelch the lab origin story. Yeah, that was him. Um, and isn't his boss there? I think uh, Eric Topol or the, they work there together. And Eric Topol's, you know, if you've seen him on Twitter, Dr. Topol is very, very active in promoting fear and lockdowns and all sorts of things like that. And now we can begin to develop an idea around this because we can see that if these people who we see on this list right here, these are co-inventors, right, on this particular spike protein. So we got the Scripps Institute people there. And oh, who else? Uh, the NIAID, we've got like one, two, three, four people from the NIAID on there. These are all people who stand to get really wealthy if and only if there are no other approved things that can be used so the EUA is intact, and if and only if 
This thing is used and used very, very widely out in public. Both of those things came to pass. So you can understand there's an enormous conflict of interest there, right? Because these people are very incentivized to make sure that this vaccine gets out into, into public use and is used widely. Anything that would prevent that from happening would, unless these are really honorable people, they're going to be conflicted about, you know, I can't imagine any of these. If my name is on that patent, let me, let me just be completely honest. Well, I'm a human too. So if my name is on that patent, I'm going to be looking at that going, woo you know, my family is set up for generations to come. This is like, you know, money grab time. And, and I'm going to, it's going to be very hard for me to be really aggressively out there looking for and supporting things that maybe um, would end up violating the, the or, or uh, um, taking the EUA and making it irrelevant or removing it. Right. I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing that. It's just part of the game, right? Well, I'm, I'm hedging a little cause I probably would. I, I still, anyway, I have a hard time acting out of integrity, but these people, it's normal. It happens. It's, it's a human thing. So these people here are um, heavily, heavily interested in seeing their careers and their personal gain advanced by this patent going through. And they're going to be a little bit more resistant to things like, let's just say, I, if I, I could easily, I could imagine these people here going, oh, you want me to review a, a study on ivermectin? They're going to look at it very, very, very critically, much with a much more focused attention than they would say um, something that wouldn't conflict with that EUA, such as another EUA substance, such as remdesivir, which got a free pass, even though the clinical trials, they had to shift endpoints and do a lot of sketchy stuff, and it didn't help. In fact, the death signal off of it looks a little worse, right? It, and it, it just didn't do anything positive. It did a lot of negative stuff, except it also made billions of dollars for certain people. So I think we're starting to understand how this system works. So let's go here. So um, oh, I forgot to change this around. Um, so this part here, I have to shift a little bit. Um, so number one, we saw that the staff at the NIH and nearly every research university uh, draw their salaries directly or indirectly from NIH funding. And that NIH is run by the godfather, right? So you just don't want to disappoint that guy, right? If you're, you know, how did Upton Sinclair, the author, put it? He said, never expect or require a man to understand something if his salary requires him not to close something like that but it, the idea is the same like that when people's salaries or incomes are on the line it suddenly gets a little tricky to get them to, to understand something that would maybe take that salary away so it's understood and it's understood by everybody how the game works if you've ever been in a university small politics at their most brutal politics are politics it's all about if you disappoint the person who's like feeding all that money to your university, your university might get cut off. That's a, a very big disincentive to raising your voice against the person who's handing that money out. So that's part one. Part two is the staff at the NIH and university researchers, as well as all the respective institutions, they stood to gain if and only if, in this particular example, Moderna 1273 was approved under the EUA. It stood to gain nothing if that didn't happen. So now we begin to develop the incentives there. And three is all about how um, the EUA... Uh, required there to be nothing, to be no competition, so or anything that would make it go away. So that's what we see here in this particular storyline. And, oops, I still didn't get it right. Um, comp, uh, 
Mission. Close. <laughs> All right. So that's the storyline. So this is really the ultimate conflict of interest. It's just magnificent. It's enormous. So let's go there. This is the NIH treatment guidelines panel. These are the people who decided at the NIH what sorts of things would be covered under the PREP Act. What are the approved treatments for COVID-19? They did a miserable, terrible, awful job. Here are a few of their names. There's the link if you want to read the rest of the names. But I'm going to point out a few things. Look at who's number two on this list on the co-chair. There are three co-chairs. Um, Roy Gulick, Clifford Lane, Henry Mazur. Clifford Lane was that person who was caught early on in that 2005 article. Same guy working at the NIH, uh, one of Fauci's most trusted people, sitting there on the NIH COVID treatment panel saying what is in, what is out of this whole thing. And look at those universities down there. You've got um, Washington University, uh, Denver Health, Emory University, University of Michigan, Pittsburgh, Mass General, on and on, University of California. This NIH treatment panel is like the who's who of major universities receiving the handouts from Fauci at all, whose chief right-hand person is sitting right at the top of this panel watching carefully. And I'm sure it's one of those hyper things where if you voted the wrong way, that was observed. Next thing you know, you might be the person responsible for dozens of your fellow researchers finding that their grants are underfunded, unfunded, pulled. You know, maybe maybe you lose the funding for your entire university. It's a real powerful game. It's, it's pressure politics. These are the conflicted here on this list. And by the way, just to drive this home, to show you just how conflicted these people are, it was even all the way to the point that as of yesterday, when I pulled this uh, from the NIH expert treatment panel guidelines off of the webpage for the NIH COVID treatments, look at vitamin D. Vitamin D. They conclude as of, still as of yesterday, here in 2022, there is insufficient evidence for the panel to recommend either for or against the use of vitamin D for the treatment of COVID-19. I underline that because I think that's weasel wording. So what they cite for their expert summary around this is a single study out of Brazil, about 36 patients in each arm, tiny, where people were already in the hospital. They're deeply sick with COVID. They gave them 200,000 units of vitamin D and asked the question, how many of them improved compared to the controls? And the answer is, that's a stupid study, right? Why would you design it that way? That's not even remotely how we would do this because what the data clearly shows over and over and over again is that people who show up at the hospital who already have high levels of vitamin D, if you're above 50 nanograms per ml, the number of those people who then progressed to either ICU or death was a fraction compared to people who had bad vitamin D levels, which would be below 30, 30 nanograms per ml. And if you were below 20, your chances of ending up in a really bad state were exceptionally high because vitamin D is not just a vitamin, it's a regulatory hormone of the entire immune system. The data is clear and it's compelling. But what I just told you was that it helped prevent people from coming to the hospital with COVID in the first place. So they weasel worded it and said, uh, we don't have any data to support its use for the treatment and we're a treatment panel. But in fact, there was nobody anywhere at the NIH on this panel or anywhere to be found who was actually responsible for trying to prevent COVID. Now, why not? That's clearly something that would fall within the purview of normal medicine. Medicine isn't just about treating people when they get sick. It's helping them not become sick in the first place. But we didn't have that. We didn't have anybody coming out at the national official levels under any president, under Trump, under Biden. Nobody's doing this, telling people, hey, maybe you should lose some weight. 
hey, maybe you should have high levels of vitamin D. Hey, maybe you should have other vitamins and supplements topped up above a certain level because we've got data on zinc. We have data on selenium. We have data on all sorts of things to suggest that if you are low in them, you would really be benefiting to be boosted by them. Now, back to this panel, though. What would happen to this panel if they actually did recommend vitamin D? Well, probably nothing good because vitamin D is not just going to be helpful in, in uh, COVID. It's going to be helpful for all sorts of immune-modulated, mediated processes in people. And, of course, there are certain industries out there who don't make money off of sick people, so they have a conflict of interest. And that same industry is the one funneling the payments back into the hands of these same researchers and university researchers and NIH researchers, and that is the whole conflict of interest wheel. They, their interests are not aligned with your health except accidentally from time to time. That's the story. Hate to be that blunt about it. I know that sounds dark, but it is ju it's just how the world works, right? So, you know, it didn't have to be this way, but it's how it is. So we just have to recognize that. And that's our first opportunity to just accept that this is kind of how the system is, which means we have to become our own best advocates, do our own research, figure out for ourselves that we want to take vitamin D because nobody's going to tell you that, let alone do what they should have done which was right away when we had the vitamin D information back in early 2020, was to send vitamin D to every single household with instructions on how to take it, when to take it, with instructions coming to you daily via every social media feed and, and um, media outlet to explain this over and over and over again until we'd gotten enough people up the vitamin D curve that the United States, instead of having one of the worst outcomes of all nations when it comes to COVID, but we would have bumped right up and probably had one of the better outcomes because that's what the data says at a minimum though when the nih panel says oh well, there's no we don't have any we can't no evidence either for or against what's the against what could it possibly be there's no downside to taking vitamin d it's not like it's really dangerous and if you take two pills instead of one you die i mean it's got a ridiculous safety profile at worst say people should maybe get their blood levels checked first and then decide how much they need to take but but Otherwise, it's, it's, it's a ridiculously safe thing. So the downside is zero, except for conflict of interest profits and conflict of interested people who don't make money off of your health. They make money off of your illness and continued illness. And that's the system we have. And we've anointed them as if they're these gods and goddesses and, and above reproach, but they're not. They're very, very much within reproach. And I think we see that extensively here um, in the fact that we have those two powerhouse hitters from the NIH uh, hanging out right there um, guiding this panel. All right, so again, from Thomas Sowell, quote, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. With a little Martinson tack on. And who also secretly get rich at the same time. That's really bad. So we have people who who can't get fired, get in no trouble, aren't going to jail, bear no consequences for their decisions, but they also get rich. This is a really toxic combo. And that's the world in which we happen to find ourselves right now. And I don't think there's any way to reform that. I don't believe that we can vote anybody in. I don't know that there's any way to swap out a couple of folks. That's once a once a culture becomes so rotten at its core that it's willing to sacrifice human lives in the furtherance of its own self-interested aims, it's, it's really not repairable at that point in time. All right. Um, so tell you what, though, uh, 
I'm also going to be talking about this over uh, further, but I got to, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because as bad as COVID is, we got a bunch of red flags in, in food, food shortages. There's food riots now, as you've heard about, of course, energy. Germany's finally waking up to the idea that it's actually SOL um, in this particular story. I don't know why it took them that long. Uh, the economy's flashing recessionary signs, markets, all that. Why, why do I talk about that stuff? Because more people are going to be more harmed, I believe, directly by the economic impacts that happen than from COVID itself. And the COVID story, by the way, that COVID story is, is a fractal microcosm of this larger story that, that we're in at this point in time. Um, and so if you want to come by uh, and see this, this is for members only. This is, uh, we, we have a subscription service at Peak Prosperity. People who join there, hey, thank you so much for being part of the tribe and, and you, you, um, you support what I do so that I'm able to spend this. Reports like this one I just put together took, took a lot of time. And I have a whole staff of people who help me do what I do, which is bring real information so that you can have informed consent in your life so that you can actually make your own decisions. I'll give you the data. You're going to decide what you do with it. And of course, information without action is at best interesting and at worst anxiety producing. So I don't care about just giving you information that stirs up the emotions. I care about giving you information that helps you make better decisions or new decisions. Because listen, the time is here. It's really getting very serious out there. This The reason I go through this sort of corruptions thing that we just went down with this NIH bit is because, yeah, you should know, B, uh, because... Um, that same level of, of corruption kind of exists everywhere. It's at the Department of Energy. It's in the State Department. It's in the military industrial complex. It's in all our major institutions have somehow lost their sense of public service. And it's all become fairly corrupt, self-interested, self-service, power, all that other stuff. Fine. Humans do this over and over again. What's different is we're going to try it this time in a world of massive shortages with an exponential money system that's got exponential amounts of debt, including the fact that, that we just don't have the resources now available to us to make um, the same sorts of accidents and, and mistakes over and over again. So it's very serious. And if you understand the COVID story, you can begin to understand the larger story of why it's so important for you to become resilient. Find your tribe, get to know people really well, develop new, deeper relationships, plant a garden, and get yourself in a more resilient state because there are hard times coming and they've already arrived at many parts of the world. They start at the outside, they move in. We're seeing lots of those signs. So that's what I'm going to be talking about back at peakprosperity.com. Come on by. We'd love to have you there and just phenomenal conversations. So if this kind of data speaks to you, then I know where your tribe is hanging out. Um, and a lot of us are over at Peak Prosperity. So see you there. That's all I have for today. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 